Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Now, my next guest's new book, Who Really Owns Ireland, examines the key players behind the scenes of Irish property and land ownership. The book has been deemed a must read for anyone interested in understanding Ireland's housing crisis. Delighted to be joined now by the journalist, author, and colleague up there in Today FM, Matt Cooper. Good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, and Bobby, thanks very much for taking the time. No, lovely. I'm an, I've an interest in this subject, Matt. Um, Why, do you own loads of property? Well, I Bobby, don't, do not, not, not really, but <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who's going to be interviewing who here. <laughs> but we'll start again. But let me ask you this, Matt. What, what kind of spurns your interest in this subject matter? I know you've pre- previously written books on why Ireland went bust and who really runs Ireland. So this is a kind of a trilogy that's an... In- what spurns your interest yeah, in this it's area? it's sort of a logical follow-on, definitely, from the first two books, which were 2009 and 2011. But so much has changed since those dark days where the economy was kaput and we were all really fearful for the future of the country and how we were going to rebuild. And I suppose that's what I've actually done, is to try to look at how the ownership of the assets of the country have changed in that time, with a particular focus on land and property and the use to which it is put, because then other assets get worked in with that as well. And it was during the COVID lockdown that the idea really crystallised for me, because I don't know about you, but you know, I tried to get out every day walking. I was doing the Last Word radio show from home every day for about a year. So I would try and get out in the morning and I would try and get a good long walk with the dog or at the weekends when the golf courses were shut or you couldn't play tennis or you couldn't do things. Yeah. I'd go out with friends. And I don't live too far from here in Marconi House. I live up in Rap Mines. And that gave me the opportunity when you had the two kilometres distance to go or the five kilometres to walk in all sorts of directions. And I started opening my eyes to all of the change which had taken place, all of the new buildings that were going up. And that got me sort of interested in, well, I wonder who's investing in this, who owns this, and what's the purpose of this? Do we need these new office blocks? Would it not be better to have housing here? And then as things started opening up a bit more and you were allowed to travel around a bit again, I suppose I opened my eyes to what was going on around the country. And if I went back down home to Cork, I sort of started walking around the city and looking at how things were changing and then started asking questions as to who's doing this and why. And the country was changing so much. One of the things that is no secret is that during our last bust, uh, effectively, there was huge value created and we had big UK pension funds and real estate funds coming in here and swooping up big swathes of property at exceptional value. And, you know, one thing would say, well, can you blame them? And two is, you know, who else was going to buy them if we couldn't buy them ourselves? Well, it's been fascinating to see how, yes, obviously an awful lot of investment had been made in property during the boom years. And then suddenly the owners of that property couldn't finance the debts that they had incurred. And the banks put them under pressure to repay immediately under the terms of the loan agreements. Perhaps, in retrospect, they rushed it a little bit. Now, they had their own reasons, but they put people and businesses under enormous pressure because of that. But yes, I mean, there was, and this is something I go into in the book, Who Really Owns Ireland, uh, there was political decisions taken to try and accelerate trade and get people buying and selling assets again. 
And yeah, foreign money took an awful lot of the advantage of it. But the one thing that surprised me when I really started looking into it, I mean, and these things happen perhaps on an ongoing basis and you, you're paying attention, but you're only paying so much attention. And that's, I discovered, well, it's actually not just UK firms, a major amount of US firms coming in, taking advantage, swooping in to buy French companies coming yeah. in, particularly in these like nursing homes, which I hadn't realised. And I think that's a major issue for the future as well as to where the rest of the money comes for things like that. German money, money from the Far East, from China, from Singapore. It was just fascinating to actually start realising, oh, that new apartment block there or that new commercial building there, that's not an Irish investment now. That's foreign money that has bought it or else has gone to use the land, get the land cheaply and build upon it. And that's what I've tried to do is trying to point okay. out. And it's, it's not been necessarily critical. That is just sort of the way of the world. But it's to try and explain how Ireland has changed over the last 15 years, how we've recovered from the crash. And one other key question I have for you is that if I'm somebody who's renting an apartment uh, I'm renting an apartment. Is the landlord not just a landlord? Does it matter to me if it's owned by an American conglomerate or by a French pension trust? That's a really good question, Bobby. And I suppose what comes back, if you look at what happened after the crash, there was a belief that too many people had taken out mortgages that they couldn't afford. And quietly, there probably wasn't enough discussion about this at the time, but I suppose we were so shell-shocked by the whole thing of negative equity. There was this feeling that there were a lot of people who really shouldn't have bought, who should have been renters. And then the belief was, well, you shouldn't be renting from a sort of an amateur landlord rather than a professional landlord. And when I say an amateur landlord, you know, there, you had all the stories about the, the local shopkeeper or the doctor or the solicitor or even the Garda who might have one or two properties that they were keeping for themselves as a pension fund and who themselves might have got into trouble during yeah. the crash. <clears throat> and there was a belief that we needed to be more European and that we needed to professionalise how we did our landlord-tenant relationships. And that's why all these big foreign firms were encouraged in. But then they became known as the vultures. And it all gets an awful lot more complicated when you look at it because these are the people who can actually build or finance the construction of the apartments that they want. And then everyone complains that they're all way too expensive. And yes, they are, many of them, beyond the financial means of many of the people who are looking to rent. But again, a lot of that comes down to actually just the costs of building apartments. And it comes down to the standards that have been put in place to make sure that we have better accommodation for people to live in than perhaps many of, yeah. the, of the, the flats and apartments that people lived in in the past. And the other issue is that it doesn't, I suppose, really matter who the landlord is as long as you can pay the rent. Well, it's great. It, it becomes an issue when... Fair rent. Yeah. Now, yeah. You, know, you can argue, actually, and the interesting thing is in relation to the building of apartments. Apartments are expensive to finance and to build. They have higher costs to build than houses, even though you're using a smaller footprint of land. But also, the, when you're building a housing estate, if you're a builder, you can do a set of houses and release them and get the money in by selling them, and then you move on to the next phase. An apartment block all has to be done at the one time. So you could be two to three years building it, and that's after you've actually had uh, your delays in relation to planning, which is another major aspect yeah. of the book. Uh, so you actually have an awful lot of money tied up that has to be financed before you get to actually selling or renting out these apartments. And that's why a lot of the developers have found themselves 
not been able to build for themselves to sell on, but to do contracts with these big international funds who have the resources, who then can take their time to build and can charge high rents, which are still related to the cost of building those apartments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if we if we look at the, I suppose the change in our town centres, our city centres, post pandemic, we have a lot of people working from home. It it kind of staggers me that the office market hasn't completely collapsed. It, it, it's showing signs. I think the vacancy rates in Dublin are 15% odd at the moment. I think they might be even higher. Yeah. Certainly higher around. And I think that's very much understated, personally. Yeah. I but, think it is. And I think it's, it's a major <clears throat> problem for all sorts of reasons. It's not just a financial or economic <clears throat> problem. It's also a social problem in relation to the, the vibrancy of our city centres. Um, I would be an enormous fan of, for example, living over the shop. When I moved to Dublin first in the mid-1980s, 1987, I lived in a flat over a shop in Dame Street. And it was terrific as a student to be in there. But there are far too few places all around Dublin city centre. And I'm talking about the other cities and towns around the country as well. And, you know, if you go to lots of rural towns where everyone has moved out to uh, live in, the, in even what, you know, they're not suburbs and towns, but they're living outside the town. Or you found that, uh, the and this is one of the big mistakes that was made as well back in the early part of the century and going back into the late 20th century, where the, uh, town, where the county councils allowed for the construction of out-of-town centres. Donut development. Yeah, which, well, but, but it's even the shopping centres. Yeah. So they ripped the heart out of the towns. <clears throat> and, you know, I think you're not probably going to get an awful lot of the commerce and trade back there unless you have a lot more people living. It, so the, people is the solution. Yeah, people. So, you know, not everybody is going to be living in a bungalow in rural Ireland or a house with a back garden. That, you know, and particularly as people are looking to develop their way, you know, instead of actually building lots of new duplexes or whatever in rural towns, try and refurbish what we actually have and do the same in Dublin city centre. I would love, for example, to see you look around here, just around the corner from Marconi House, Angel Street. Let's get all that done up. Yeah. Let's get O'Connell Street done up. Let's get people, you know, let's have people living above the floor, in, in above the various shops. You could have thousands of people. If you go to Paris, you'll see a, a huge vibrancy around over the shop uh, level. Absolutely. I was just thinking, I was there in August, just after I'd finished writing the book, and I was there with Ailey and my wife and our youngest son Harry and we were sitting out and I was just looking at the, the, the flats and then I was talking to people about this as well and of course the interesting thing is is that these various places in Paris would never pass the fire restrictions yeah. in Dublin because there would be all sorts of complaints about access and the rest of it and apparently they do have all sorts of problems about getting furniture up and down the stairs and all the rest of it but you know what it creates they live there they have very few problems and it creates a sense of vibrancy and you'd rather be living in an awful lot of those places in Paris than you would be to be living out in the suburbs Do you fear for the future of Dublin city centre? I certainly do unless something radically changes? I don't know if fear is the right word. I mean, I think it can be dramatically better. I think we shouldn't be so resistant to change. 
um, you know, we've got to change the purposes of a lot of buildings. So you know, we're talking there about it's not easy to repurpose office accommodation into housing. Because, because of the light and the... All sorts yeah, of things. It's yeah. the way the lift shafts are, when you have the actual cores for the building, even the heights of the actual ceilings. So it, it becomes almost like you need to rip everything out and start again in some cases. And that's why you have maybe things like apart hotels and whatever and stuff are better used for commercial space than trying to make permanent residential. But I think we just had to be imaginative to, yeah. sort of, to put life back into the city centres. I, I would love for, I, for one of the things that I did, I didn't just concentrate on Dublin. This is a book about Ireland rather than Dublin. And I, I spent one morning running around Cork city centre, which I would have grown up and I would have known very well. And it was great to see that there were certain things been built in places like uh, North Main Street, even if it's student accommodation, to put life back yeah. into the areas. Yeah, yeah. And to just, you know, to create a sense of coming into the centre of Cork City or to come into the centre of Dublin as well, that we want it to be, I, I'd hate, I, know, I have friends in Cork who say they never go into Cork City Centre. They've grown up going to school with me in the North Mall in Cork, which is not far from the city centre, and we would have been going in during after school. And now they would live out in the suburbs and they go to the shopping centres in the suburbs and they go to the sports clubs and never come into the city centre maybe once or twice a year. And I think that's an awful shame. Yeah. A city centre should be the hubs in all around Ireland. Okay. Well, look, it's a fascinating read. It obviously raises, in some cases, more questions than answers. But uh, I've no doubt there'll be a fourth and maybe a fifth book in you. <laughs> so, Matt Cooper, uh, from Today FM, colleague here in Marconi House, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Bobby, for having me. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.